Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts in the globe, and it is all because of my truly incredible guests. And I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game and who are absolutely willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. Now, these are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with you the essence of peak performance. And today, debt and credit strategy attorney Jen Lee joins us to discuss the elephant in the room, how financial stress destroys productivity, relationships, and health, and what you can do about it. So Jen Lee is a debt and credit attorney, as I mentioned, and she is the owner of Jen Lee Law Incorporated which is a law firm with offices in San Francisco, San Ramon, and Tracy, California. She is a leading expert on debt, credit, and financial stress and has been featured in Consumer Affairs, U.S. News and World Report, and other national publications. And she is also the creator of several innovative programs to help you deal with financial stress and rebuilding after financial disaster. A burning question today, we especially today, Things are getting kind of ugly out there. Is how can someone set themselves up for financial success, even if they have made mistakes in the past? And she joins us to share answers to many financial questions, as well as the story behind her elephant, Bernadette. Jen, welcome. Good morning. Thank, thank you. Good morning, Denise. It's great to be here. I have got to know what is Bernadette. It's spelled. <laughs> I must spell. B E R N dash A dash debt. I I keep seeing a fuzzy, you know, like a little fuzzy pel- thing that you put on your pillow. That's, that's kind of what it I'm is. Yes. <laughs> Bernadette is a stuffed animal, but how she came about was the. Uh, so the idea is that a lot of people have financial stress and the statistics show that 70% of Americans have a debt or credit problem of some sort and no one wants to talk about it. So it's this elephant in the room. And so burn a debt has become my way of making a hard topic more cute and cuddly. And Bernadette is a stuffed elephant. She comes with me when I speak at places, she, she talks to clients, she has her own website But the idea is that you're not really alone out there with these problems. You just feel like it because no one else talks about it. And it really is the hardest part of financial stress is admitting there's a problem and then trying to figure out how to get the right help for it, what to do with it, because you're too afraid or too embarrassed to admit that you have the problem with debt or credit. And I think that is the biggest deal because, look, we've all gone through it at some point. Mm -hmm. Some of the wealthiest people in the world have taken bankruptcy at least once and sometimes multiple times. Mm -hmm. Your neighbor next door may look like they just, they're having a good old time over Mm -hmm. there, but they can't afford that truck sitting in the driveway. Exactly. You know, it's, I don't know. Is it time for us to just stand up and say, you know, I can't really afford that right now? And no, I you know I can't buy your product or your 
whatever it is that you're offering and be honest about it. It's just not in my budget right now. Yeah, it's hard to say that, especially if you're trying to support a local business, you're trying to do something and they're approaching you to buy something, or you're trying to keep up appearances. You're worried about how the people will perceive you. And one thing I try to stress with my clients and people I talk to is that everyone's so worried about themselves, they don't, they're not looking at you. They're not trying to figure out what you're doing. Everyone's so focused on their own problems. And so don't worry about what other people think. Worry about what's best for you. But setting boundaries is hard. They're, you know, half the population is very much yes people where they don't want to say no or they're afraid to say no. So some, a lot of it's psychological. It, there really is a lot of psychologi- psychology that goes into financial issues. And you said something, and I'm going to have to paraphrase this, but mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's a very smart thought. You would be sh- shocked, stunned if you knew how little people think about you. How, yes. how frequently, infrequently, they think about you. Because, we, you know, obviously we are the center of our own universe. Everybody loves us, right? Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of people are like, what was your name again? <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> so, you're not as important as you think you are, is my point. Mm-hmm. It's very true. People are so worried about themselves, and then that turns into this projecting their problems onto everyone else type of psychology and so worry about yourself and what you can do to make yourself in the best position and that's like the first step to get started with financial stress issues well I'll tell you I don't have a problem saying no no is actually (laughs) one but I've had to really hone how I do Mm -hmm. it and when I do it but no has always been my favorite word and as far as I'm concerned it's actually a complete sentence it is but it's difficult for people to say, oh, I don't know. Let me think about that. And if you're in sales, which we all are, everybody's in sales, whether you're, you know, actually making money out of it, you're selling something. And, you know, at the minute somebody says, oh, I have to ask my wife, cross it mm-hmm. off, it's over. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> yeah, that's just an excuse. And I'm at the point in my life, well, I don't want to make excuses, and I don't want to mm-hmm. hear excuses. Just say what's on your mind. It is difficult, though. That's very true. You said something that's really important there, that no is a complete sentence. You don't even have to make up excuses. You can just say, no, that doesn't work for me. You can say, no, that, you know, this isn't a this isn't something that works for me right now. You don't have to say, I can't afford it. You don't have to say, this doesn't work for our budget. You don't have to say things like that. Um, All you have to say is no or no, that doesn't work for me. Perfect. And, you know, if more of us could just put it on your whiteboard in front of you, no, that doesn't work for me. And you don't even need to add at this time because now you're offering hope. The answer Mm -hmm. is just a simple declarative sentence or a simple declarative no. And I think, I really do believe this, Jen, if more people would learn to just say no, whether it's to their kids, saying, but but I really, 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 really want that pair of jeans or that toy. Nope. (laughs) Or whether it's just somebody who's saying, listen, I really, really want you to join my group or my no. No is a good word. It's a powerful word. It's very powerful. Yes. So what are the mistakes, Jen, that you're seeing people making with their finances, particularly now? Yeah. If you read the news, which I do not, if I can avoid it, we're being told that there is no recession. I call complete BS on that one. If we're not in it, we're well on our way to it. But 
are you finding that people are saying, okay, it's time to kind of tighten up and maybe not spend some of the money I've been spending or are they not there yet? What are the mistakes that you're seeing? So the biggest mistake I see, a lot of people have been kind of teetering for the last two and a half years with the whole uh, issues going on in, in the country and the world. And there's been a lot of uh, programs that have helped with stopping evictions and foreclosures and not as many collections out there. And we're starting to see those things pick up again. So what I'm seeing is people not quite coming to the understanding that they can't keep spending the way they've been spending. And then the next step, a lot of times, and people did this back in 2007, eight during the, the last recession, not that we're in a recession now, but during the last recession, they took a lot of money out of their retirement accounts. And if you are to the point where taking money out of your retirement account to pay debt is where you're at, that is a significant level of financial stress. And you should not do that because Retirement accounts have special protection from creditors. Retirement accounts are pretty much gold when it comes to saving for the future. And I had a lot of people back then who were in their early to mid 40s that took money out of their retirement accounts, had to pay extreme amount of taxes and penalties for taking the money out, paid off the debt, but then they ran the debt back up again. And so now we're 12, 13 years later, 14 years later, they don't have retirement savings now. And now when they're late 50s, early 60s, they're stuck working. And so what I would like to get people to realize right now is that a retirement account is not a piggy bank to cash out to pay off debt because it can be protected. So my message lately has been, please figure out what to do with your debt and credit before you start cashing out retirement accounts. And let's dig into that. But I remember... <laughs> 2008. I'm in Southwest Louisiana. We're in the oil. I mean, everything here is oil field practically, or fish. It's either fishing or oil field. Or these days, hospitals. They're everywhere. But I remember seeing bumper stickers, and one just had me going, had me pulling over by the side of the road, bowing my head, and it literally said, "The last person out of Louisiana, turn the lights off." <laughs> oh, geez, and it was that bad. It really was. Yeah. It, it so really what, was, yeah. Yeah, it was awful. So, but, you know, there was, as Americans, as humans, we're always hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people said, well, you know, this will pass kind of the same with COVID. This will pass. We'll get over it. And they made the mistakes that you're talking about, and now they're going, mm-hmm. oh, geez. So instead of doing what they did and continuing mm-hmm. to do in some cases, what can they do to settle that debt or, you know, what are some steps they can take? So I do a lot of talking. So I'm a debt and credit attorney. And so what I usually walk through with people is least aggressive to most aggressive strategies. And the first thing to do is look at your budget. The hardest step of this whole, you know, mindset problem is it's hard to write down what you actually have for debt. If, if I don't look at it, it doesn't exist, Right. And so that first step of writing everything down and seeing if there is actually a way to budget out is really the first step that, to take control of things and feel like you're in control. Start looking at, can we, is there something to settle? Is it not going to be off three or four years? If you're looking at long-term debt that off, I would start looking at other options more aggressively, possibly debt settlement, although I'd be very, very careful with those late-night television commercials we'll see and, you know, Google. Google doesn't have a lot of degree. 
so be careful with those options that are out there. And then I start looking at bankruptcy options because sometimes bankruptcy is the quickest way to improve your credit score, believe it or not. Bankruptcy can be the best way to save your house from foreclosure. And it can also be the best way to help you save for retirement because you've wiped out some of this bad debt and gotten the fresh start that you needed in order to make better decisions. So sometimes we're talking through the bankruptcy options to figure out, hey, what does my life look like in one, three, five years after this? And what do I want it to look like? I've heard a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to take bankruptcy because that stays on my credit report forever. That forever is not quite exact, but it's a long time. So it does stay on your credit report as a public record. So it shows up, if someone runs your credit report, it shows up as a public record. It does not really affect your score for the seven to 10 years that it's a public record. Most of my clients who are in a situation where all their cards are maxed out because they've been struggling for a long time or they had a medical issue or something happened, their credit score goes up when they file for bankruptcy. They will often have a 700 or a 720. No, because your credit score is a measure of how risky you are and how risk you are to lend money to. And if you've removed that risk of all the cards being maxed out, all the late payments, then your the algorithm that's out there looks you look less risky. And so a lot of my clients, the quickest way for them to buy a house and get a mortgage is to file for bankruptcy because you qualify for mortgage lending one year after a bankruptcy. I did um, not know that. Which is that's what I might to get thinking, people. <laughs> yeah, and I can see why it's important. My thinking is if you think I'm listening to the thunder and watching the lightning outside my window. So if we go dead, it's not me. But it would seem to me as a logical idea that if you have filed bankruptcy, you've already told the world that you're not good with money. No. So you told the world correct. that you were yeah. You told the world that you're over you were overwhelmed at one point and had to do something to resolve it. So uh, what I tell and a lot of times bankruptcy will help you qualify for some government jobs because you've cleared up your credit. And so what I tell people all the time is bankruptcy is something that very smart business owners and rich people do, and they don't want you to really know about it. They don't want you to think it's a good thing because they don't want you doing it as well. And so it's a tool. It's just a legal tool that's out there that should be used as needed. Not, I'm not saying go out, run your credit cards up and file for bankruptcy. That should not be a strategy. But if you're struggling, definitely consider bankruptcy and look at your long-term financial life to figure out how not to get back there again and get that fresh start. How many people do wind up in bankruptcy again? <laughs> It's too many? interesting. There, are, there is some that have multiple filers because once you've done it, sometimes it's easier to do it again. But it's also, I think, the repeat filers that I have seen have usually had some, uh, usually a medical event is what I see. It's not medical bills, but it's something where they lost their job. And then when they found out in the future that they lost their job again, they're not as hesitant to go seek help. So sometimes the repeat bankruptcies are just because of life circumstances, bad divorces, um, medical bills, things like that. Usually something caused you to get into debt. It's not usually overspending and living beyond your means like a lot of people think it is. Well, and that makes sense. And another big thing that's all over the world right now, everybody's talking about student loans. Mm-hmm. That's a biggie. 
Listen, I, had, I went back to college when I was older and I got my computer science degree that nobody cares about but me <laughs> because I had to pay for the darn thing. And those student loans just, oh, my gosh. But you got to do it. Listen, my yeah. attitude is you took the loan, you owe it. That's my mm-hmm. personal thought. And I agree with that for the most part. The problem with student loans is they're set up to be very predatory loans. They, they are. accumulate interest. They So if I think that if the student loan interest rates, and I'm going to use myself in this example here. So I had about $175,000 of student loans after law school. I started oh, my own law firm. You win. I yeah. didn't go anywhere near that. Right. So I had, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be a lawyer. I can pay this back. You know, I, you know, young and determined, that kind of thing. And you, they encourage you to go on these income-based repayment programs because when I first came out of law school, I wasn't very, making very much money. I was, I started my own firm because I, I'm an entrepreneur and I like to do that. And so I was on income-based repayment and I paid back about a hundred thousand dollars over 10 years. Do you know what my balance was at the end of those 10 years? Oh my God. Because the interest is constantly accumulating. My income-based repayment wasn't enough to cover the interest that was accruing on it. So I would have been happy to pay back $175,000 that I borrowed, but I ended up paying back, you know, 270,000 plus all those payments I made over 10 years to pay it off. So I think that's just wrong. Paid back but I think they need to be structured differently so that people can actually afford to pay, pay them back. It's a soapbox topic for me because I see a lot of stress in the financial system. Oh, area. yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's everywhere. So mm-hmm. now we're talking about bankruptcy and student loans. Can you take bankruptcy because you cannot afford to pay back those student loans? Is that even doable? So it is possible. It, the laws are constantly changing in this area. And so student loans, there's a ridiculous standard for a hardship discharge and each circuit has different rules at this point. So student loans, a lot of times, unless you have a diagnosis, you're disabled, it's hard to get rid of student loans. Sometimes we can reorganize student loans in a chapter 13 or make payments manageable. But a lot of times student loans are the biggest issue. Sometimes we're getting rid of all the other debt so that the client can focus on the student loan debt, to be honest. So credit cards are struggling because we're getting rid of those debts so we can pay off this other debt that's not going to be discharged in bankruptcy. So it's, there's no real winning here, is there? <laughs> not right now. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm not oh. really very happy with how the student loans have been, you know, they're forbeared until August 31st, but no answer has been given. And if you owe $2,000 a month in student loans and you don't know whether that's going to be due September 1st or not, that's very hard to plan around. No kidding. Mm-hmm. So are, are people, there's a lot of talk about people saying, I'm not going to college. I'm going mm-hmm. to, you know, find a skilled trade. Yep. Which to me makes a lot more sense. And even though I do have a degree, <laughs> it still makes a lot more sense. And, yeah, and listen, you always need a plumber. You always need somebody to fix your air conditioner. You don't always need, and sorry, a t- an attorney. You hope, right. in fact, you hope you never I totally do. Agree. <laughs> so, so there's that. It's like we we love to hate you guys. We just like mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to have an attorney. Oh geez. Well, well, we do the same thing with the AC guy. I, I'm 
I can't make that right. distinction. <laughs> it's hard to write. It's hard to write the check for either one, but yes. Yeah, just get over here and fix it. I'm dying. So, and I live in the deep south. We have two, yeah. you know, basically two seasons, hot and hotter in hell. And of course, right now we're in the hurricane season, which means also the mud season. So it's, if anything mm-hmm. goes wrong here, we're all walking around going, well, crap. Well, we're saying something else. But yep. But that's very true what you said about that it's not all about college these days. And I think, and I often encourage people, think about trade schools, think about community college to get your general credits out of the way and transfer to whatever you can do to keep your costs as low as possible and not take on student loans. And one of the biggest mistakes mistakes I see with student loans right now is parents taking on student loans for their kids, not co-signing. I was to ask you, see that? Not co-signing. I don't love anybody that much. I have to be honest. (laughs) And I encourage you not to love anybody that much, to be honest, because I have a lot of senior citizens right now and senior citizens, you know, government standards, 62 and above, you can collect social security is is the number I'm looking at. 62 doesn't seem very old to me anymore, but that it is what it is. But I have a lot of them that are getting garnished. Their social security gets garnished at 15%. For some of these no. loans they took on for their for their kids, these parent plus loans. And oh, if I have no. any piece of advice for any parents out there is do not take on student loans for your kids that you don't have assets to back up and pay off if something happens. If you're taking out student loans because you just want to leverage the interest rates and you have assets, that's one thing. But if you're taking them on because you can't say no to your kids going to some $200,000 school, I would rethink that, that strategy. <laughs> And that's where we go back to the very very beginning. And just say no, no, yes. no, and then there's hell no, so no. Yeah, I I don't understand why parents would do that unless there was a financial component mm-hmm. to it. But so I'm from what I'm hearing from you is, is these kids didn't pay their loans and now their parents are stuck. No, no. So these are loans that. So what the school does for undergraduate is they give you like seven to $10,000 of your own loans. But some of these schools cost $50,000 a year. So the difference, $40,000, they say, oh, your parents can get a loan. They, they qualify for a Parent PLUS loan. And the loan is not in the student's name at all. It is the parent's loan for, for good. Yeah. Oh, no. And so, and that's also one of the economics of the cost of college is because this, there's been this money out there that people are willing to borrow. Costs keep going up. And this is my observation. It's not scientific. I don't have any real data to point to it. It's just what I've observed. But an awful lot of people coming out with these very expensive college degrees can't get a job. Mm-hmm. I think but if you can fix whole, air conditioners, you can get a job. Right. Well, and that's the whole thing is like, what do you look at the long term? What are you going to do with your degree? Is does it support the loans that you're taking out? But no one discusses that. No one says, oh, you're going to have $200,000 of student loans, and that's $2,000 a month or $2,500 a month. And your degree that you're going to get pays $36,000 a year. Do the math. You uh, can't afford to pay that back. And so right. that isn't a discussion that's had. And 18-year-olds don't know what they're signing. I mean, we don't teach financial literacy, so they don't know really what they're signing for the most part. And the parents aren't helping by then taking on all these additional loans either, so... Kind of no, and there's, and, there's uh, yeah. all kinds of perks. I saw one 
ad somewhere the other day. It's like, sign up for this particular degree, and we'll give you a free computer, and we'll give you a free. I'm like, uh-huh. you can go to, um, you can go to the grocery store, you can go to Walmart and pick up a computer. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I would not go somewhere just for perks like that. But I've also learned a lot. I mean, I did a lot of stupid things when I was 18, 19, 20 because I didn't know any better. And now it's nice that I can look back and I, I fixed those issues. But it's really hard to understand what's a good thing and what's a bad thing when you're you're that young and you're learning about finances. Well, and let me ask you this. is I mean, we had mentioned your programs earlier. Do mm-hmm. you have programs that we can send people to to say, you know, to ask these kinds of questions? Because we don't know what we don't know. Look, when I was 18, 19 years old, I probably shouldn't have been allowed to walk and talk. Seriously. <laughs> None of us really should have, probably. <laughs> we don't have a brain in our head and we are arrogant as all get out. We know everything. Yeah. We don't we don't know a darn thing. But the thing is, how do people find people like you, the parents and the kid, or even older adults mm-hmm. as, as they say because listen, when I took out my student loan, it was a boo boo, big one. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have done it. But, you know, I got my little piece of paper. Woohoo. <laughs> so <I got> <laughs> But how do people find people like you to say, is this a good idea? Where can they find comparison charts? Where can they find help? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of programs out there. You have to go look for them, though. And the ones that you just Google and look up often are not the best ways to do that. (laughs) So Google is great, but I also have a problem with when people just use that as their sole source. It's very skewed, and it's skewed towards advertisers, obviously. Uh, So a lot of the programs I work for, I do a lot of discussions with seniors in high school, a lot of speaking and talking to parents in that age range. And then I also offer one-to-one discussions where they bring in their financial aid package and we look over it. Now, I'm not a, like a counselor for college or anything like that. I have resources I use and refer people out to if they're looking for scholarship information, things like that. But if we're just looking at the numbers, I do a lot of those okay, don't take the financial aid package they throw at you because they're just going to throw these parent plus loans to account for thousands and thousands of dollars because they know you'll sign on the dotted line type thing. So, but yeah, I do a lot of, a lot of it. And it's hard to find people like me because you're trying to not be the advertiser out there. You're trying to be the one educating people. So, Well, at least you're out there. Yeah, because, again, we don't know what we don't know, mm-hmm. and especially yep. at that age. And I'm assuming that, you know, their, their parents aren't all that old themselves. Maybe in their late 30s, early 40s, they probably yeah. are still trying to figure life out themselves. It's very true. I see a lot of generational financial issues where the, it's the same problem with the grandparents, the parents, and the kids. And so a lot of times there's some therapy. I I have a podcast called Debt Therapy because there's so much emotion tied to all these decisions that were made. But a lot of times it's passed down from one generation to the next. Well, yeah, you see that a lot wherever you go. I know Mm -hmm. my father, brilliant guy, couldn't fight his way out of a paper sack, but, you know, he was a very smart guy, not a lick of common sense. Mm -hmm. And many just flew straight out of his hands. It was bizarre. And for the longest kind of time, I treated money like it was the same kind of, eh, yeah, easy come, easy go, until I realized that I was going to wind myself in big, big trouble. Yep. 
but you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it can be generational. I've seen it my my family, other families. That makes perfect sense. So, go go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, and a lot of it goes back to that saying no that we talked about a couple times so far. It's it's one generation almost enabling. I hate to use that word because there's such a negative connotation to it, but it's one generation trying to bail out the next one. And sometimes right now the sandwich generation is the the one where they're taking care of the elderly parents and they have the the kids that are adults, but you know maybe in college. And I see that generation really struggling right now because they're trying to help their parents with the cost of getting old in America. And then they're also trying to pay for their kids' college or the student loans they took on. And it's really crushing some that middle generation. No kidding. And then you see cases where some of these people also are taking care of their grandchildren. Yes. Because the parents yeah. are busy or not in the picture or, you know, my mom was very smart. When we all moved out of the house, she sold the house and bought a two-bedroom, one-bath house and said, nobody's coming back home. And she meant it. She was uh-huh. dead serious about it. That's one way to do it. That's one way to be able to say no. Is not have, I don't have the room. No, I can't do it. You can spend the night, but it's going to be on the floor in front of the fireplace and you're gone by noon. We knew better. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. But yeah, and we're laughing, but you know, no is a good word. So what we're talking about, you know, Googling things and trying to find help. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the scams out there that you're seeing a lot that, you know, where people fall for finances like, oh, you can get this credit card for blah blah mm-hmm. blah 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 or you can get in my case where you know, I mentioned you can get a free computer. Oh geez. Right. You know, there's just so many different ways that and it's all marketing. Obviously it it's all marketing. Yeah, the biggest ones I see are, okay, when people are stressed out and they're really worried about their finances, a lot of times they can't sleep. I would say insomnia and anxiety are probably my two most medical issues I see with people who are financially stressed, and they're watching late-night television. Well, if you ever watch late-night television, all the commercials are settle your debt for pennies on the dollar, or if you have $10,000 or more in debt, you have the right to settle your debt. And those often are not the best programs. So when you call into a debt settlement company, and I won't name any of the names out there, but people are very familiar with them, you're getting a salesperson on the phone. They're not looking at your situation and trying to explain all of the options to you. You're getting someone who's only going to try to sell you their program. And so I find that a lot of people don't understand that debt settlement is actually worse for your credit than bankruptcy. They don't understand that they will likely get sued as part of these debt settlement programs because the, all the creditors know that once you sign up with a debt settlement company, the end is near. This is either going to be a, a massive failure or only the first couple of creditors are going to get paid from the debt settlement company. And so the lawsuits start right away, and it can be very stressful there too. So none of the cons are really explained by these sales programs. And that's one of the scams. I tr- it's not necessarily scam. There's been a lot of lawsuits and that kind of thing, but these programs don't work the way that they are sold to people. So that's one thing I like to get out there. And then the credit cards on college campuses these days, they're not supposed to be pitching, uh, you know, rewards and that kind of thing on college campuses for credit cards. But I always talk to my 18-year-olds that are going off to college to talk about credit cards and getting a credit card and using it responsibly versus signing up for a whole bunch of credit cards because it's really easy to fall into a debt trap when you have 
credit being thrown at you constantly. Well, and if you haven't learned at home or from mm-hmm. somewhere how to balance your checkbook, how to spend your money responsibly, how to save money, it's it's like free money. It's like, ooh, it's magic. It is, yes. Yeah, oh. and there was there's even ones that you see like, oh, I only have to pay $10 a month. I can buy this $200 a thing, but then you don't realize that it costs you $300 then over two years to do that. So it's if you don't understand it and you never got explained how finance and how interest works, because interest, it's amazing to me what people don't understand about interest. And I'll give you an example. Some of these online lenders that you can go online and, you know, you put in your income, you maybe upload a bank statement and they give you money like within 24 hours, they charge ridiculous interest rates. So I had a client one time who got $5,000 from an online lender and she was going to pay back $35,000 over like four years for this $5,000 that she got because the interest was so high. And she didn't understand that paying $1,000 a month for this loan wasn't a good deal. She was like, oh, I just need the $5,000, and that's what I saw. So I took my $5,000. So people don't really understand interest. She thought that if she paid $5,000 and 12 bucks more, that she'd be off the hook? No, she just didn't – it didn't occur to her that she was paying $35,000 for a $5,000 loan. She was just like, I need a $5,000 right now to – you know, oh, fix my, my car or whatever it was. Right, and so right. people take those. They don't look at the long-term effects of it. They're just like, I need the money now. This is my option. And those loans are crazy. Uh, aren't, shouldn't, aren't these illegal? <laughs> shouldn't they be illegal? So most, a lot of states do have laws with the amount of interest that can be charged, but the online lending gets around a lot of the state laws. So, and there's also... Um, some of the payday loans are on a different regulatory scheme too. So sometimes they're pitched as payday loans and payday loans are the end of the end. If, if I see someone with payday loans, they likely should have filed bankruptcy two years ago. Now, what is a payday? I mean, I've heard of them, but I don't mm-hmm. have any real knowledge of them. Yep. So a payday loan is when they're usually like a local shop that you walk into. It's a storefront and some of them are online now though. And you go in and you say, look, I I'm getting paid on Friday the 15th and I need $500 now. So I'll give you a check. I'll give you a, you know, posted a check for my next two paychecks and you give me the $500 now. And so it's this vicious cycle where, yeah, you're going to get $500 today, but on the 15th, they're going to take $300 out of your check. And on the 1st, they're going to take another $300 out of your check. So you're never getting your full paycheck again. You just keep cycling through these payday loans because you're always behind the eight ball each month. That, I, I'm almost speechless, and that just almost never happens. But how can people live with themselves if this is what they're doing to their fellow man? Well, <laughs> That's true. There's a whole lot of, of corporate responsibility. That's, that's a whole other discussion probably. But it's also the demand. Like you're providing a service. So the argument on the other side of this, and I try to look at both sides a lot of times, is that a lot of the payday loans, that's the only type of emergency money they have. So if you look at statistics out there, it shows like 75% of Americans couldn't cover a $400 emergency bill like to get their car fixed. They would have to put it on credit. 
And so sometimes if someone doesn't have decent credit, these payday loans are the only thing that's helping them fix their car so they actually can go to work. So it's serving a market. It's just, it can be really easy to fall into a pattern with these loans. And they are high interest rate because they're risky. The lender has to make up enough money in order to make it profitable to the lender. And so that's where the high interest comes in. Well, I understand that. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm a little bit lost. Walk me through this. So if yep. I walked into somewhere, which I wouldn't mm-hmm. do, but, well, I don't walk into anywhere. I have my groceries. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go anywhere if I can avoid it. But mm-hmm. the thing is, if I were to go into one of these places and say, okay, I need the $500, mm-hmm. it would seem to me that I could safely expect that, that $500 would be paid with my next one or two paychecks, and then I would be done with that. And you're telling me that's not the case at all. So it's not the case because what happens is when that $300 comes out of your next next two paychecks because you're paying $600 for the $500 loan, now your, your paycheck is that much less. And so all of your bills that you normally would pay with those paychecks are now behind again because you've already drawn against your future salary. So it becomes so you a have to keep cycle. going back. Yep, you have to keep okay. going back, and you have to keep oh doing my it. So, yeah, yeah. And oh, and no. I know you say you would never do it. You never walk into a place. But I always tell people until you've been in a situation where that was your only option, it's really easy for us to say, "Oh, I'll never do that." Well, I meant that saying I don't walk into any places. <laughs> I know, I know. But I always, I always a, say I would never I'm do it either. And then I'm thinking. Introvert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get it. You do what you have to do. Yeah, but you know, I wouldn't go in there because I try not to go anywhere. If I can I'm with you, Denise. I'm not joking. <laughs> I am not joking about that. Seriously, I bought my house online. I bought my car online. I buy my groceries online. If it can't be sent to me, I probably don't need it. <laughs> That's just how I live. <laughs> okay, so let's. And that's fascinating about the payday loans. I had no idea. Thank goodness mm-hmm. I've I've never right. been in that position. Listen, I've been close. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I have been close. I mean, there's days when, and I still will wake up and go, okay, I've got this, this. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I bang my head against the wall, and then I take some time and I go find a way to make it work. But right. it happens to all of us. I mean, we're all going to have some. You know, some small minor irritations with money or big ones. I mean, nobody has got the perfect setup. It just, I don't think, mm-hmm. I think things happen. Yeah. So, and I've had my, clients who make like a million dollars a month and they have credit problems. So it's not just a level of income where I'm, oh, I'm only talking to lower income people. It's people don't understand credit and that can be a source of financial stress if they don't understand how credit works. So it's not just a, a, a poor people problem, I guess I want to get out there. No, it's not. It's everybody. So that leads me into wondering how can someone, you know, if they've got these problems or they don't want to have these problems, at least at the level that we're talking about, how can mm-hmm. someone set themselves up for financial success, even if they've got some whoppers in their, their past, like payday <laughs> loans or bankruptcy, which I guess is not the whopper that I thought it was. Yeah, so a lot of times what I tell people is if you're only able to make minimum payments on things, then you really should start looking at, you know, what are my options? What does my future look like? And that first step, looking at finances is the hardest part. But then once you get into it, you have to figure out how can I make my life work on what I actually make 
either people have an income problem or they have an exp- like we have to adjust one or the other. There's one side of the balance sheet or the other has to be adjusted. And so a lot of times what I'm working with clients to figure out is how can that adjustment be made so they can live within the means. Now, these days with inflation the way it is, it's, it's a little crazy out there. And I understand people are having to really make some tough decisions on what to do. But just admitting that you want some help with it is really like the first, I know it sounds really cheesy, but that's usually the first step is figuring out that you need to figure out what to do. Um, and then I also talk about relationships because money is a real problem in marriages. And a lot of times it's because people don't talk about it before they get married, how they're going to handle finances. And so I see a lot of tension there. Sometimes therapy is the best thing I can say for people with financial issues is because there is a reason why they do things with money that they don't understand why they do it. And a lot of times it goes back to childhood trauma with money. And so I tell people all the time to get therapy. It's not because I'm being glib about it. It's because most of us need therapy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) On that one. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, this is one of my tricks, you know, I've got several credit cards and I try not to use them, but sometimes you're going to, but I've gone online and I have frozen every single one of my credit cards, Mm -hmm. except American express. They'll only let you go seven days. So every seven days I'm freezing that darn thing. But the thing is, the point is if I go to use it and it says, Nope, I'm like, Oh, okay. Do I really need this? So it stops me in my tracks. And now of Mm -hmm. course I know they're frozen. So before I even think, okay, hit, you know, yeah, I want this. I know mm-hmm. that now I'm going to have to go back online, unfreeze my card, look at my, you know, what is my balance out there? What's and then balance do I want it? So it, it's a nifty little trick. Freeze those cards. Yeah, it's really interesting too. I tell people go a whole month with not putting anything on the cards and track what mm-hmm. you spend. Because people yep. often tell me, oh, I pay off my cards each month. Or if I put something on my cards with a balance, I at least pay off what I spend. I'm like, really? Prove it. And so they'll come in and that's why their balance has been creeping up is because they weren't, they were putting stuff on the cards and not paying off the amount that they, you know, the balance plus the amount that they were charging each month. So one of the tips I have if someone's trying to reduce their debt is stop using credit cards altogether because it's that creep that happens if you think you're paying off something and you're not really each month. This is true. And when I have to use my debit card, which most of the times I do because mm-hmm. my cards are frozen by me, <laughs> I will go, okay, hang on a second. That's cash. Do you really right. want this? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a really different mindset. Um, and I would say debit cards versus cash are also, a, it, the psychology is very interesting. People are less likely to spend cash in their wallet than they are to use a debit card. It's really interesting. Like people hold on to cash for some reason. And so I see some interesting uh, results when we go to a cash only system with some clients. Well, I only have three bucks in my wallet. Ever. <laughs> right, which I never carry any cash either. So I understand. <laughs> I don't carry it. I don't think I have even any pennies. Yeah. Okay. So budgeting tools, do you have one mm-hmm. that you recommend? So there's several online tools that you can use. There's Mint, there's YNAB, which is youneedabudget.com. So there are a couple online apps if you're going to use them. My system is 
I have to find something that works for the client because there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to people with financial issues. And I have to find the one that they're actually going to use because it's not very helpful for me for me to say, oh, here's a, an online app to use, and then they never open it up because they don't do apps. I have spreadsheets I've used with some clients. I have notebooks that we've used with some clients because they were visual where they had to write things down in order to get the psychology behind what they were doing. And so my best system is the one that works for the client that I'm working with. Index cards work for me. Really? That's good to know. Yeah. I've never used index cards. Yeah. Oh, I love index cards. I'm a list maker by... Yeah, my mom said I used to make lists, and they were very pretty, color-coded lists when I was a small child. But notebooks—I don't know. It's mm-hmm. too much like journaling for me, and I have to flip yep. the room and go find them. Index cards—they're mm-hmm. in stacks, and I know what's in that stack, and that stack, and that stack. And once I've finished something or moved it off of the table, mm-hmm. I have a little. Yeah, this. <laughs> I turn on the shredder. And I shred it. Uh-huh. It's very cathartic. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> it works but for that's me. Sweet. It's the psychology behind what you're doing, though. Like, you know that this is done and you can shred it. it. It's a very physical aspect to the psychology that you're going through with whatever the list says. So, like I said, it's what works for the individual person because we're all motivated by different things. We really are. And you're right. And find it what works for you and that you will actually do and mm-hmm. not just think about or, you know, once this bill comes and you've got a you know $26 draft fee because, you know, it's overdrawn right. or whatever. I don't even know what charges are now. But, you know, all of a sudden you're like, ah, uh, I should have had that written down somewhere. Oh, I did. I just didn't open the notebook. <laughs> well, there's an ongoing there's joke that. with me and some of my, my friends is I buy planners and I never use them. Like I, I like the idea of a planner, but I'm horrible at like actually using them on a daily basis. And so my friends always joke with me that they're like, well, we're going to buy you another planner. You can stack it up with the rest of the ones that are gathering dust. So. I should send you a picture of the ones that I have. I buy them. People give them to me. I'm like, oh, I can do that one. Oh, the cat's sitting on it, and I don't want to disturb him. Oh, but tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. Yep. So and they're perfect, I mean, for people who can use them. I can't use them. Yep. Or I, I, I find one I, I won't use. use that would be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's it. So we talked a little bit about credit scores. Are there yeah. some common misconceptions about credit cards? Mm-hmm. Credit. Say it for me. <laughs> credit credit scores. Common scores. <laughs> there are lots of common misconceptions about credit scores. And so what I usually tell people is everyone's always focused on having like this 800 credit score. That's what they're there are ranges of credit scores. There's poor, there's fair, there's good, and there's great, basically, is the four ranges of credit scores. If you're above a 720, you're going to get the best offers out there. You don't have to go for perfect. So that's one thing I like to tell people is you aren't your credit score. You can just have a good credit score and get good offers. The other ones that I see people making a lot of mistakes are the number one the highest percentage of your credit score is your payment history, like how well you make payments on time. And so if you have one 30-day late on your credit score, meaning you made one payment that was 30 days late, that can knock your credit score down by over 100 points. And so it's a huge hit to your credit when that happens. A 30-day late is not the same as making a late payment. 
So if you are one day late and you have to pay like a $39 late fee or whatever, that's not going to get reported as a late payment. It's only once it's been 30 days. So if you miss a payment, go online and make that payment as soon as you realize you've missed it, because then you can maintain your credit score. Um, the next that's part. Yeah. Yeah, if it happens, yeah, go online and make the payment. The next part of your credit score, another 30%, is how much of your credit you're using. And this is by card. So let's say you have an Amex with a $10,000 limit. If you put more than $3,000 on that card and it gets reported on your statement that you have more than $3,000, 30%, it will start dragging down your credit score. It's called payment, or it's called your debt utilization rate. And so if you have 10 cards and you have less than 30% on each card, your credit score will be about as high as it can get. Once you start going over 30%, it will get, your credit score will get lower and lower and lower. That's why the people who come in who have maxed out credit cards have very low scores because they have ruined that part of their, their debt ratio. So I often will fix people's credit scores very easily by just paying down the right cards and the right debt. So when people notice this, that all of a sudden they're mm-hmm. getting really lousy offers or that car mm-hmm. that they really want or they really need is going, the interest rate is just mm-hmm. not, not doable. If your yep. interest rate on a car is so high that you just basically doubled the the note, I'd say, you know, get a burner, you know, go get an yep. old junker and drive that until you can afford one. It's hard. The car industry right now is very difficult because the average car payment now, I believe, is close to $750 maybe. And that is ridiculously high for most people's budgets. So $750 is a lot of car payment. And that's not even on like a really nice tricked out vehicle. That's like a standard you know, $30,000, $40,000 car these days because cars are so expensive. And so I'm seeing a lot of stress in the car market and the, the repo rates have gone up significantly the last couple of months for some of these loans that were taken out during the last two and a half years. And used cars, oh my goodness. I was actually looking <laughs> at Carvana because yeah. you know, I've got my car is older and she's starting to have trouble. In fact, I just spent several thousand dollars after I realized that I was not going to spend six or seven hundred dollars on a two-year-old car, wasn't going to mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot going on right now. There is a lot going on, and I will say that if the repos continue the way they have been, then maybe the used car market will soften a little bit because there'll be more inventory available. It's all supply and oh. demand. So oh, I didn't even think about that. Not Although that I, I want people's cars much to money. get repoed, right? No. <laughs> I've already I made my decision. I spent the money. I put her back into running condition. Okay. You know, with okay, these, my car is a Range Rover, and when the um, mm-hmm. we had to put just regular shocks on it, all of a sudden mm-hmm. I was driving home, and she just went bump and started riding on the tires. Oh, no. And it was going to cost seven thousand dollars to fix that, and I said no, mm-hmm. no. So we found another route and it worked just fine. But oh my gosh, and that's when I started looking for used cars and realizing that there was no easy answer out there. Yeah, it's not a good time to be looking for a used car, but I will say to buy the cheapest, most reliable car you can at this point. 
Oh, seriously, I was going to spend a whole thousand dollars and just park something in my car that would take me to Walmart yeah. if I needed to go. And I may do that yet. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, you ha- you do what you have to do, but don't spend money uh-huh. just because they want you to. Yeah, it's hard, too, because a lot of people, I've seen this with some people have been out in the job market for a while and they're like, well, I, I need a new car appearances kind of thing. Going back to that whole stigma, social stigma type of how you spend your money and people are like, well, oh, I can't drive a, an older car because what will people think? No one cares. No one's paying attention to what, what they think of your car. They're, con- they're concerned with themselves. So, and if you look at the people with a lot of money, they're usually driving the old 1992 Toyota in the parking lot or something like that. Well, exactly. It worked. It's still working. Why why mess yep. with it? I've seen that mm-hmm. an awful lot, especially down here in you know the oil company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of very wealthy people. In fact, an old friend of mine, he's passed away now, but he came by. I had a jewelry store at the time, and he came by, and he tossed some keys at me. He said, I just bought a car. You want to take a ride? And I went, sure. It was a Rolls Royce. <laughs> the next year, that Rolls Royce looked like he'd been hauling pipes in it because he can. He did. He treated yeah. it like it was a pickup truck. Right. But he kept that thing until he died. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing if you're going to keep something forever to to buy new and get something. But I always am cautioning people with vehicles, no one cares as much about what you drive as you do. So don't pay attention to it. Caring less about what other people think is kind of my mantra these days is who cares what other people think, do what's best for you. Exactly. Within reason, ethically, of course. Yes. <laughs> That's but, yeah. exactly right. But the thing is, I mean, I've had my car for years and I do not want to replace that car. I love it. Mm-hmm. But she's at the age now where she's going, ah, my hip hurts. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Either fix it or, you know, swap out. I don't want to swap out. But, no, I get it. So when – and let's talk about savings because that's yeah, that my next right now. Yep. My next thing is if you have a car that you're driving forever, start saving money so that when you do have to replace it, you have, you have money available to do that. And you're not just looking for a loan at 20% interest because that's the interest rate at the time when you're looking. Um, but savings is really important. The number one thing to keep people out of financial stress is to adequately save for unplanned expenses. And I, like I said earlier, like 75% of Americans couldn't cover a $400 emergency bill. And that's a shocking statistic. The other shocking statistic is less than 10% of people have more than $100,000 saved for retirement. And they are two sides of the same coin, basically, because People aren't saving for necessary expenses, and retirement is going to be a necessary expense. So I'm a huge fan of putting aside even a small amount of money starting from the very beginning of your employment, putting money into a 401k, putting money into a savings account so that if something does happen, you don't do the, oh my gosh, I have to put this all on a credit card. And then you're doing that dance of how do I pay this off and still save for the future. It's really hard to save and pay off debt at the same time. No kidding. And this isn't something that we talked about in the Mm pre-interview, but listen, as a nation, we are pet parents. We Mm -hmm. spend millions of dollars on our pets. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that that I see every time I walk into a vet office is, you know, get our, yeah, there's there's going to be pamphlets for pet insurance. Yep. That's a scam. Yeah, there are some 
pet insurance that is that are better than others. But and I will say insurance itself is also another way to protect against a lot of unexpected expenses. Uh, homeowners insurance, umbrella policies. I recommend everyone has an umbrella insurance policy. And if you don't know what that is, I'm happy to talk through that. But I have a lot of bankruptcy cases I file because someone got into an accident and their insurance didn't cover all the damages. And now they're being sued personally. If they would have had an umbrella policy, they would have avoided bankruptcy with an umbrella policy. Gotcha. Well, one thing, and you know, I've, I have cats, I have a dog, I always mm-hmm. will. And people will say, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't afford this. You know, the bill for my vet is going mm-hmm. to be $1,000. And it's by then, of course, it's too late mm-hmm. to get pet insurance, even like most of yes. mine are, you know, elderly pets, and yes. they couldn't get insurance even if I wanted to. <laughs> and I will tell people left, right, and center, put a little money in a savings account for your pet costs. Exactly. Yeah, you know, just do it. I mean, they're part of the family. You know, consider and it like you would a, a wedding wedding account. Although exactly. I don't know why people pay for that, but you know, that's yeah. Just you have. It's going to happen. Your pets are going to get older. They may get hit by a car. Something could happen. You are going to have expenses. You need to be prepared. Well, I think people underestimate the cost, like a monthly cost of having a pet. Sometimes I do a lot of dog and cat rescue, and so I'm not disillusioned by how expensive. Uh, animals see, but I think people underestimate that when they go pick up a puppy at the shelter. They don't realize how much it costs to um, feed and the vet bills that are involved. And so, yes, having part of your monthly budget go to pets and then also part go to a savings account that will pay for future expenses is really important. Oh, exactly. I swear to you, Chewy's. I spend more money Mm -hmm. in Chewy's for my pets than I do at Walmart for my food. They eat better than I do. I believe it's a way of life. (laughs) I mean, one or two of them have to have, you know, medical food and one has to have insulin. And, you know, that's, it adds up. You just don't, don't think that, oh, I'm going to have this really cute little pet. You're going to have money. (laughs) So just deal with it. Yes, you need to plan for it. So that's, I mean, it goes along with planning for a lot of different things. But planning, if you're going to take on the responsibility of a pet, or responsibility of children, or whatever you're going to take on the responsibility of a car, you have to save up money for unexpected expenses. So, Absolutely. Jen, we're just about out of time. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have anything else you would like to share with the audience before I let you go? <laughs> My big thing out there is you're not alone. If you're struggling with this, lots of people are struggling with finances, and it's not a failure on your part. You just need to find out what to do. So that's my, my big soapbox. Yep, you don't know what you don't know. Go find out. So where yep. can people find you? So my website is jenleelaw.com. I am on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. And then my debt therapy is my podcast, the 10-minute tips on financial literacy. So Perfect. Jen, thank you so much. It's been really fun and wonderful <laughs> speaking with you. And I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you shared with our audience. And I'm losing my voice. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes, Audible, Apple, anywhere you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey. Jen, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, 
contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.